We are in a series, week two, and uh, I'm excited about this series. This is a series where we have been uh, uh, just challenging ourselves to step up. And the series, I called it, We Dare You, or I Dare You. And last week, we dared you to dream. And we talked about the story of Joseph and how a dream could sustain you through every dilemma, through every delay, through every doubt. It could take you through those things. And that God's dream, when you were aligned with God's dream, could ultimately expand into a destiny that was bigger than you had even imagined when the dream arrived. And, uh, and I'm praying for you guys. I've been praying for your dreams all week. I've been praying that God would give you dreams. Some of you shared some specific dreams with me, which are exciting. And I've been wanting to just check in on you and see how that's going. I pray that God would give you the passion to continue to chase your dreams, no matter what season of life you're in. And then this week, we're talking about something that I'm very particularly passionate about. But I'm going to dare you guys to invest in the next generation. I'm going to dare you to pass it on. And I don't know um, if you know this about me, you probably do if you've been listening at all, but I spent a lot of time doing youth ministry, about 15 years, give or take. And I, uh, I know what it's like to spend a lot of time with a generation that's following up behind you. Now, initially, when I, when I wrote this and I began to put this together, I was pretty focused on just parenting. And some of you who are parents in here will hear my parent heart come out a little bit. But I want you to catch that more than just parenting, we have a sovereign responsibility to pass our faith down to the generations that are coming along behind us. I did about 15 years of youth ministry. And as I did youth ministry, there were some things that I loved, some things not so much. Actually, someone asked me just recently, what was the worst the worst part of youth ministry, not the worst part, because that's a little bit there. Maybe the worst thing you had to do in youth ministry is a better way to say it. The worst part, the worst part, well, I get emotional. The worst part is sitting across from any human, but especially a young person, and looking at them in the eye and saying, there's so much hope and potential right here available for you. Don't go do that. That thing you're thinking about doing, just don't go do it. Save your life. Avoid that, but not being able to control their choices. Parents, you know this too, and not being able to determine that and then seeing the outcome of that and loving them through the pain of bad choices. That's the worst part. The worst event, to come way back down from that, the worst event and activity that you do is easy. It's snow skiing. <laughs> Give me a van full of kids in Mexico over snow skiing any day. It is the absolute worst youth event, bar none. And some of you are like, how could that possibly be the worst youth event? Let me explain. This is the life of a youth pastor. Well, we got more kids than we can transport. Go get your bus license. Okay. So I get my bus license, and we drive a broke-down bus up a mountain in horrific weather with, like, I think this thing had, like, an F-150 motor in it, so no power. 47 kids, I think is what it sat in there. We're driving up a mountain. You can imagine all the bad things that happened already. By the time we get to the parking lot, Pastor Mike is no longer a Christian. Some 18-year-old is waving me into the parking lot, and he's like, hey, park this bus over here. I'm like, you don't understand. I can't navigate this bus the way you think I can navigate this bus. I can't fit over there. He's like, we got to turn here. Turn your wheel. Turn your wheel. Turn your wheel. Turn your wheel. And smack, we hit a Volvo. Yeah, I lift a note. He was pretty cool about it, though, right? We get up on the mountain, and here's what happens every ski event in youth ministry. 
first thing that happens is it cuts right down the middle who can afford to go and who cannot go. Because skiing is expensive and it's kind of a luxury item. So you're already leaving kids behind, which I hate doing in youth ministry in general. And so it's one of my events I already don't like. We get up there and half of your kids have zero experience, but they really want to be with their friends. So if you know anything about a junior high kid that doesn't want to be left behind, but doesn't know what he's doing, you can just feel the tension. So the whole first part of the day, I'm walking kids through rentals. I'm trying to get them things that fit. I'm showing them how to use their equipment, trying to teach them how to snap in or whatever they need to do and figure it out, right? That's the whole morning. Then after that, your first wave of kids are on the mountain. So you go up on the mountain on this, like the smallest areas and you're with the kids that don't have any clue still what they're doing. Now it's lunchtime and you have done nothing except for help very emotional kids who all feel left out because the ones who know what they're doing are just having a blast, right? Lunchtime hits and the rest of the day you spend with the kids that got hurt in the first four hours. You're calling moms, you're going to the hospital and that's a ski trip. So you can imagine it is my least favorite event. One time a year, that's it. <laughs> Second least favorite event, New Year's Eve. New Year's Eve is the second worst. Here's why New Year's Eve is the worst. Sorry, I'm giving you all this stuff. This is fun. But New Year's Eve is the worst for this very simple reason. Well, a couple of reasons. The primary reason is what happens on New Year's Eve, parents, is you want free childcare. So you don't care if your kid wants to go on whatever New Year's event we're going. You just want someone to take your kid for New Year's so that you can go have grown-up New Year's Eve. So what happens to poor youth pastors on New Year's Eve is you plan this amazing event Tons of kids come, and then all these kids you don't ever see come, and you're like, this is awesome. All these kids I don't ever see are here. This is going to be so great. And then all these kids you don't ever see don't listen at all for the whole night because they know they're never coming back. So all of the leverage you have when you say things like, don't spray paint in the bathroom at the roller ring, or don't, you know, right? All those kinds of things, they all happen on that event. That is the event, uh, the event of all events where if every, everyone's going to be bad, that's the one. So I banned all New Year's Eve. Plus, the weather's dangerous. It's hard to drive around. There's so much chaos. So what I always did is I did an all-nighter during Christmas break, but not on New Year's Eve. And so that was, my, that was my catch to get away from that. And then parents would come all mad. Where's my free child care? And I'm like, raise your own kids. And so <laughs> welcome to the life of a youth pastor. <laughs> all right, where was I going with all that? The next generation, they matter and they're important. And I know what it means to pour our life into the generation that's coming back behind us. What is the secret sauce to reaching and rescuing and connecting with the next generation? The secret sauce is time. The secret sauce is time. I'm gonna tell you a story about one of my favorite youth staff guys I ever worked with. I had tons and tons of teammates that would come alongside for seasons and doing ministry. And one of the guys that I partnered with, his name was Mike, and he was an older guy. I don't know how much older he was, well older than me, so he must have been a dinosaur. And Mike wanted to invest in middle school boys. He wanted to, he wanted to connect. And I said, here's the thing. We are gonna start a middle school boys small group that's gonna meet every Monday after school at three o'clock. And we're gonna spend an hour inside and an hour outside. And, and we could flip flop, but in one of those places, we'll talk about Jesus and the other one, we'll play games. And so we'll either play football outside, talk about Jesus inside, or play video games inside, talk about Jesus outside, either way. And I'll take the high school and I'll flip flop with you. And he's like, okay, deal. And so we go, now you gotta imagine middle school boys, all they wanna do is play video games. Now, Mike grew up in a generation that I don't think he ever saw a video game. He had no video games experience or skills. So he meets with me and he's like, listen, I really want to connect with these kids, 
I can throw a football around with them, but all they want to do is play video games. And I don't even know how to play this game. I can't even make a character to play these games, right? And I said, all right, Mike, I will make you a character, and here's all you got to do. You never have to learn how to play the game. All you have to do is play, be with them, and laugh at yourself, and, you'll, and they'll love you. And he's like, really? And I was like, yeah. So I made him a character, and his character's name was Big in Slow. <laughs> and those kids would come every week, and for an hour, they would just blow up big and slow. And they would laugh and tell stories about finding him, and he would laugh, and they would connect, and then they would talk about life in Jesus. And years later, Mike went on and got licensed as a pastor just so he could do the weddings of those kids as they got older and wanted to get married. And who did they want to marry him? They wanted Mike. Because for years, he showed up week after week after week, and just big and slow, just let them blow him up. What is that? Here's the thing. A critical truth of investing in the next generation is that your attention, your attention is worth more than your advice. You want to have a successful experience investing in the next generation, it's going to require your attention. It's going to require your time. Is your advice important? Sure but your attention and your time is worth more than your advice. I was thinking about people in my life who, who mentored me, who spoke into my life. I didn't have a lot of that in the home, and so I got that from different individuals on my journey with Jesus. I had a pastor who explained it this way, and I love the way he explained it. He said, as you kind of journey through life, you develop your own hall of fame, people who were significant at different seasons of your life, and they spoke into your life, and it's like you store that, they get a, they get a bus in your hall of fame. And you remember them. And I was thinking about the people who are in my hall of fame. And I don't know who would be in your hall of fame. But it wasn't some of the things that you might think would have been really important. It wasn't the smartest people. It wasn't the wisest people. It wasn't the people who had their life all together necessarily. It wasn't the people who had their financial situation and were able to lavish gifts or something like that on me. It was the people who took time and spent it with a little snot-nosed Puerto Rican, alpha dog, arrogant, angry person that showed up every week at church and was like, prove something to me. Who sat next to me in service just so that I would sit still and not talk or chase whatever girl I was chasing at that time. Who invested and asked me questions about my life and came to my games and showed up at activities and just were there. Do I remember all the advice they gave me? Probably not but your attention's worth more than your advice. Parents, you know this is true. In your parenting, come on now. We love dispensing the advice. Hey, don't do that. Knock it off. Get off your sister. She can't breathe. When she screams at that tone, that means that she's no longer having fun and now you're hurting her, right? Parenting advice, clean this up. Or else, parenting advice. We love doling out the advice. We love it. But you know the most impactful thing is to give your attention, to spend time, to hear their stories, to listen to whatever thing they're doing, watch whatever show they're watching, play whatever game, activity, play the silly pie-in-the-face game, whatever it is. Your attention is more valuable than your advice. Here's the thing. Our church has an incredible, incredible history of investing in the next generation. We have to give them our attention. They need it. 
They need our time. They need it. So I'm going to take us through, <clears throat> as long as my voice holds out, um, a passage of scripture. If you've got your Bibles, you can jump to Deuteronomy. It's near the front, chapter 6. And I'm going to walk you through a story in the scripture where Moses imparts wisdom to the next generation. And he gives them some keys for propagating a cycle of faith in their community that I think are absolutely relevant still to us today. If you have your Bibles in, in Deuteronomy chapter six, and here's what's so amazing about the scriptures is that even though we are going through thousands of years of history, these words and these principles are still true to God's people today. I was studying Deuteronomy and I was thinking, you know, I've read Deuteronomy a whole bunch of times without ever really asking some big questions. Like, why is there a book of Deuteronomy? Because most of the beginning of Deuteronomy is recaps. It's mostly, hey, here's all the things God did. Here's the 10 commandments again. Here's all the battles that you're gonna fight. Here's all the stuff that's going on. Why do we need all that information another time? But here's the thing. The word Deuteronomy, it's from two words that are broken apart. Deuter means dos, two, right? Second. And onomy comes from nomos, which means the law. And it's, here's the second time I'm giving you the law. Now, as you look through the scriptures, here's some powerful things. Every time we get an exodus, come on now, we get freedom. We experience God's power. He breaks us out of bondage. He breaks us out of slavery. He relieves the oppression of our life and brings us into freedom. God always gives us a Leviticus, a here's how to live free now that you're free because you haven't experienced this kind of freedom. And I want to ensure that you don't wander yourself back into slavery. And so why then a second giving of that? Well, it's important to note in this point in our history. Now, last week we talked about Joseph and how God protected his dream for a people who were about 70 strong, took them into Egypt. And I told you when they got out of Egypt, they were about 2 million strong. So 2 million strong come out of Egypt. They are experiencing God's freedom. Moses gives them the law and says, here's how you live free. God tells them, I have a provision for you, a land of milk and honey, a promised land I'm going to send you to. They go out and check on the promised land, and they're like, it's scary over there. We don't like it over there. What are you doing, God? And God's like, okay, if you're too afraid and you don't trust me to receive your inheritance, I'll wait till the generation behind you who doesn't have the hangups, doesn't have the fear, isn't carrying the baggage that you're carrying in your life that I'm trying to free you from but you don't want to let go of, I'll allow you to hold on to that, but you're going to die in the desert. And when you die in the desert, we're going to take that next generation and we're going to give them the promise because my promises are still yes and amen. They're happening. So that's where we're at in the story. So now something amazing happens from Kadesh Barnea, which is the place where they were camped when they sent the spies into the promised land who came back and were like, they're scary over there. We don't want to go to the place where they're at right now when Deuteronomy gets written, which is just on the eastern side of the Jordan River, it's about an 11-day walk, 11 days. 40 years have gone by. They've made it 11 days worth of distance. Now, I've been stuck in traffic. 
And I know you can get delayed, but 40 years of delay seems rather absurd to me. What I do love about the scriptures is, if you notice this, they always talk about distance in terms of time it takes to get there. You never see it was three miles to the next outpost, three kilometers. Like, they don't use any of that language. But we do the same thing. Here's how I know we do the same thing. If I ask you, hey, how, how far is the airport? The first thing you're going to ask me is, what time are you driving? Right? You're not going to say it's 31 miles because 31 miles is not useful information. What's useful information is tell me what time you're leaving because it's either 30 minutes or it's two and a half hours. So you tell me when, you, when you're traveling and I'll tell you how far the airport is, right? So when God says, hey, you're going to go over here, it was supposed to be 11 days, but it turned into 40 years. At the end of 40 years, an entire generation has passed away. Everyone, the scriptures tells us, who was of fighting age is now died and buried in the desert. All of the parents, grandparents, everyone who came out of Egypt as an adult is now passed away. Only three old folks are in the camp. You've got uh, Caleb, Joshua, who were the two spies who were tough, and Moses. And Moses is 120. He's 120. Now, Moses is writing this, and he writes this letter over the course of about three weeks. They're camped on this side of the Jordan. He knows he's not going to the other side. All kinds of things have happened for that to be the case, but he's not going to the other side. And so he's like, you're about to go into the promises of God. You're experiencing another exodus. So you are going to need another Deuteronomy, a second impartation of the law. So let me, in these last three weeks, Lay out for you, for the generation coming behind me, how do you start a cycle of faith in this community that passes from generation to generation to generation so that nobody experiences losing the promises of God? Now, Deuteronomy just came alive for you guys. You know what's going on, right? So here we are. We're in Deuteronomy. Three weeks or so have gone by. Moses is writing. I love in Deuteronomy 34, Moses, is, he tells us he's 120 years old. He's about to die. But he's like, he was still strong and he still had good vision. For some reason, it was like important for him to let us know at 120, man, his eyes, 2020, he's got it, right? He was sharp. So he's able to write this down and give this second law. So the first five chapters are essentially him saying, you know, here, remember what God did. Remember God pulled you out of slavery. slavery. Remember he rescued you and be aware as you go into the next land. Here's the 10 commandments of God. Here's the basic principles to keep you away from things that want to ensnare you and rob you of your freedom. Here's how you can live the most free. Here's the people groups you're going to encounter on the other side of the water. Here's how you remain faithful to God and you don't integrate your life by accepting their faith, but instead you stay, you stay dedicated and committed to God. And he's writing this out and he gives some principles. And I'm going to give you those keys. And the first key, some of them are going to sound so obvious. The first key is very simple. Key number one, he says, hey, love God. When you get to the next side, when you get to the next season, as you break out of the bondage, the slavery, the thing that's ensnared you, the thing that's held you up, when you get over there, rule number one, keep loving God. Keep loving God. So Deuteronomy chapter six, let's walk through how he says it. Excuse me. He says, these are the commands, the decrees, and the laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, 
so that you, here it is, the cycle, your children and their children after them. He's saying generationally, if you put this into your life and model it, the generations that come behind you will be impacted by this. After them may fear the Lord your God as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give to you and so that you can enjoy a long life. How cool is that? And you're like, what? You just blew over fear the Lord your God. Yeah, fear as in holy reverence, respect. Don't leave God behind. Don't assume that, you know, God and you are just so bros that you don't have to uh, respect who he is. His nature doesn't change. He's still holy. He's still God. So we give him props for being who he is at all times. Um, so that you may enjoy a long life. Verse three, hear, O Israel, and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you and that you may increase greatly in the land flowing with milk and honey. Listen to this. He's not trying to give them a bunch of laws saying so that you can be bound up and restricted so that you don't experience all of God's best. He's saying, I want you to recognize that if I give you law, if I give you principles, if I give you boundaries, it protects your freedom. Because these other things want to ensnare you and steal your freedom. And I want to keep you away from those. It goes into a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, that's a fascinating thing there. Uh, I, I, I admit I've never been to Israel, but I haven't seen a picture of like milk and honey flowing everywhere. I like Google Earth did a couple times. I didn't see it. I always wonder about the milk and honey thing. So I did just a little like preliminary research. And so I'm just telling you, this is just my preliminary research on explaining why I don't see milk and honey everywhere. And, and it always comes up there. But here's the thing. The principle of milk is this. They were going somewhere where there was enough water and enough wells and enough places that they would be able to generate cattle and livestock and be fruitful. And, and, and so milk would be provided because there was food. Remember, they're in the desert. So they're getting out of the desert into a place that would have enough provision that they could agriculturally, no, that's not agriculturally. Is that agriculturally? Animals? Okay, thank you. Sorry, again, I'm drugged up. But whatever that word is, <laughs> they could have success. And honey, I'm like, is there an insane number of bees there? What is going on? I've never seen a picture. But the honey they're referring to are from, from dates. The fruit, dates that they can, they can make that honey there. And basically that he's saying, you're going to have agricultural success there like you've never seen before. And you're going to be able to, to, to experience that benefit. And he goes, just as the Lord, your father's promised to you. So there you go. You learned something. And then he drops this incredible, this incredible verse, uh, verse four here, this incredible statement. It's the Shema. It's the Hebrew declaration of faith of who God is. If you have Hebrew friends or Jewish friends that have grown up um, in homes that uh, embrace their, even their culture or their faith, then you know that they say this on a daily basis and they say, hey, hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. And it's like this power statement in the culture, in the Hebrew culture, because they are recognizing there is one God and that's the one we serve. Now you gotta remember, they're getting ready to go into a land that's filled with people who follow all kinds of superstitions and all kinds of different things. And they are gonna hold on to this truth. There's one God and that's who we serve. And then here comes this incredible declaration. You might've thought Jesus said this first. Moses said it first. Love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul and with all your strength. These commands that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. 
And that's the command that Jesus says of all of the commands. Remember, that's the second nomos, the second law, the second time that they received all of the, uh, of the instruction of God. And in that second time, Moses says, hey, this is really important. Jesus says, not only is it really important, it is the most important. And then he marries it to Leviticus, I think it's 17, um, and says, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. But this is where we get the greatest commandment. And Moses says, if you get something right, as you move out of your exodus and into your, come on now, promised land, don't forget to love God with everything you got. Well, what does that mean? It says, love him with all your heart. It says, love God with all your heart. What does that mean? He says, love God with the things that your affection. What gets your affection? What gets your primary affection? What is the thing that lights you up? that you care about the most. And if God isn't connected to those things, then you're not loving him with all your heart. What has your affection? Is your world devastated because of a football game? (laughs) That's right. I dropped the mic right there and I'm leaving. I'm not saying those things are bad. I'm just saying, what has the center of your heart? Your affection. He says, love with all your soul. And the scriptures talk about your soul so much. And that essentially the soul is like the culmination of your identity and who you are. It's your heart, but it's so much more. It's, the, it's your passions and your desires. It's the part of you that is distinctly and ultimately you. It's what God breathed life into. He says, are you authentic? If you love God with all of your soul, are you true to yourself? Are you divided and loving God in this moment, but not in this moment and chasing other things in this moment, but God in this moment? He's saying, don't do that. Be authentic, be connected, be whole. I've designed you for that. And then he says, with all your strength. Some versions say power. I kind of like power because power is easier to understand. Strength is like my buffness, but really he's just talking about where do you give your resources, your power? Where do you lend your strength to? Your abilities, your skills, your resources. He says, love God with how you use your gifts and your abilities and who you are. Demonstrate your faithfulness to God by doing that. He says, key number one to having a cycle of investing in the generation behind you is that they get to see that in your inward parts, you love God. You're consistent on the inside. Key number two, though, you gotta share God. So he says, these commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts, verse seven. And he says, impress them on your children. Impress them on your children, press them in. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. There's some funny pictures of that. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. What is he talking about here? He's saying the external picture of your life should reflect the internal commitment of your life. The stuff people see on the outside should be consistent with the behavior of your heart on the inside. And here's the thing you know, our kids can see through your faking it. They can see through your inconsistencies because you were a kid once and you saw through grown-ups inconsistencies. You heard do what I say and not as I do. You heard don't swear and then all this profanity came out in your house. You heard, you can't watch that, and then you walked in and they were watching that. Whatever the inconsistencies are, 
And here is Moses, and he's saying, you've got to externally demonstrate that you are the same. All the time, your inside and your outside match. They're consistent. The values that you say are important are demonstrating your life. Now, he's like, write them on your shirt and write, you know, tie them to your forehead. Listen, wear the what would Jesus do bracelets, put the bumper sticker on. I, all those things are positive. I'm not, I, sometimes I make fun of them, but I'm not making fun of them. I, I, I'm just communicating. That's not enough. But the outward expression should be there. You should be consistent. And they should be able to see that. A generation behind you should be able to see that. You know, it's pretty funny. I was thinking about how we live in one of the areas that is notoriously, I will just say, proud of being anti-faith. The Pacific Northwest is a hub for anti-faithness. That's a word. In fact, I was looking for the statistics because the statistics just get worse every year. And so whenever you find statistics, there's another set that are just worse if they're current of people who have faith in the Pacific Northwest. And this was the title of the article that I found. And I just thought it was amazing. Don't believe in God, move to Seattle. And the entire article is a, just a blanket statement that the culture in Seattle and the surrounding areas embrace Anti-faith, embrace it. Let me give you a little bit of excerpts. 10%, this is from the article, of Seattle residents call themselves atheists. It's the highest rate among the metro areas in all of the United States. Um, and that it's in part that people come here to find that type of cultural freedom. Listen to this quote. When people come to the Northwest, they come across the Cascades and they, all of their old affiliations, they just drop them out the door. Wellman, the author says, I think that they find that a bit of a paradise. You can think what you want, do what you want. You can make your life what you want. All your old affiliations, especially family, religious, and other affiliations aren't around you to try to bring you back into the fold. We live in a community that has embraced an anti-God state of mind. And they look at people of faith and they say, your outside doesn't even match your inside. So we don't want anything to do with that. And Moses says, the way that you demonstrate to a generation behind you is that your inside is committed to the Lord and your outside matches that. The way you live, your acts of service, what comes out of you is consistent and looks like Jesus. We have a generation that needs to hear our story. They need to hear your faith story. Parents, let me ask you this, and you don't have to answer it or even make eye contact with me. Can your kids tell your faith story? Maybe not theirs. Can they tell yours? Did, did dad tell them how he met Jesus? Did mom say how they met Jesus? They probably know how mom and dad met. Probably told them that story. Did you ever tell them how you met Jesus? Do your kids know your faith story? Have you passed on that legacy of why they go to church, not just that they have to go to church? That dad met God at a camp and show God showed up. Dad didn't have a father and God became his father. Whatever it is, can your kids do that? Do they know that? Don't ask my kids after service. I see some of you judging me. I'm not judging you. I'm not judging you, I'm just asking you. Can you tell your story? Have you told your story? Will you tell your story? If you haven't told your story to your kids, how are you going to tell your story to anybody else? How are you going to tell your story to that person who's, who's works next to you and ask, well, why do you go to church every weekend? This generation needs your story. 
Moses says, they're going to need the story. You're going to have to write it out and tie it to you. You're going to have to demonstrate it. You, we want them to ask questions. Dad, why do you wear a shirt that says WWJD? Whatever. Why do you do that? Why do we go to church on Sunday? Why do we have to get up? Why? Oh, because this is what we're Americans is what we do. Or they're going to go, well, we live in the Pacific Northwest, and most of us don't. Right? As soon as they're old enough, if that's your best argument, it has to be more than that. Key number two is you got to share your faith. It's got to come out of you. Even if it takes four hours. <laughs> Tell them the story. <laughs> I've heard Joe's story. It took about four hours. It's awesome. It's amazing. Tell them the story. Where else they got to do? Next key. Simple. Remember God. Why does he throw this in there? Remember God. Well, let me read it to you and then I'll tell you something that just hit me. It's totally amazing. Deuteronomy chapter six, beginning in verse 10. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give to you a land with large flourishing cities you did not build. Did you catch that? Houses filled with kinds of good things, with all kinds of good things that you did not provide. Wells that you did not dig and vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. And when you eat and when you're satisfied, listen to this, verse 12, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt and out of the land of slavery. Now, this is fascinating. I had to stop and think for a while to understand why Moses would share this. But you got to recognize he has an entire generation in front of him who were either born in slavery or born in the desert. They have never experienced the freedom and blessing and provision that they're about to experience. But Moses is 120, and he was born in Egypt in royalty. And he knew what it was like to grow up in court and have someone wave an olive branch at him and drop grapes. I don't know what they did, but he knew what that was like. He'd experienced that. And he knew about the complacency that comes when things are going good. And he said, this generation has no clue how to manage success yet. And the moment they get it, their first tendency is going to be, thanks, God, I got it from here. And he's like, you have to model how to handle the success in your life also. Because one of the greatest dangers are those moments when suddenly the provision is now there. I was going to share this last week, and I chickened out, so I'll share it this week. But I was thinking about like New Year's resolutions and things. And here's the thing. I didn't talk about New Year's resolutions last week because I just didn't want to. But here's the thing about resolutions and things like that. If they're just good ideas, we usually don't do them very well. You want to meet someone who says, you know, my New Year's resolution, I really want to work on my prayer life. Say, I got a spiritual one. I want to work on my prayer life. Great. That might last for a little while. You want to know who has a raging prayer life? The person who's in crisis. The person who's just experienced a catastrophe, who's just got a call from a doctor or just found out that their friend is going through something. That person usually has a raging prayer life. You want to know the person who's pretty committed to getting in shape? It's not always the person, you know, sometimes it's just because it's good for me to do it. But often it's the person who found out, hey, your prognosis isn't looking so good unless you do something about this. And all of a sudden people go, oh, okay, I got to do it. Now, is that okay? Yeah, that's awesome. 
I love that, that God comes in and completes us when we're weak. I love that the scripture says that his power is made perfect in weakness, and it's not because we're dependent on ourselves, but we learn to be dependent on God, and he meets us in our tenderest, most vulnerable moments and gives us what we need to make it. That is incredible. But there is danger on the other side when things start going well that Moses says, don't you forget God, don't you Forget about me right now. <laughs> I'm choked up, okay? Go with me. 80 songs are popping through my head right now as I'm preaching. In the midst of all of that, he's like, sometimes things are gonna be going well. You know, you were all about, what can I do to help? I'm gonna serve God. I'm in crisis and I, just, I need to rack up points. And then things are going well now and it's like, ah, call me if you need anything. Your heart changes, your actions changes, your behavior changes. And he says, listen, you want a cycle of investing in the next generation that challenges them, then you manage your success with not losing your dependency on God and your faithfulness to him. I love the way um, Proverbs says it. Proverbs 30, verse seven, um, the, the, the author says it this way. And I love this. He goes, two things I ask of you, O Lord, and do not refuse me this before I die. One, keep falsehood and lies far from me. I like that because it's like, I get the haters out and the liars. I don't want to deal with that. And then the second is, is, is what I want to focus on though. He says, give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bed, bread. Otherwise I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. What is the author saying? He's saying, God, always keep me in the tension no matter if I'm a little bit on the scale on this side or a little bit on the scale on this side, always keep me in the tension of recognizing that all of my provision and blessing are connected to the favor of God. And that will keep me with perspective so that I don't feel like I have to take control of it when I'm wealthy or take control of it when I'm in lack. I just remember to be dependent and counting on God. I never want to abandon God because... I got this. How you manage your wealth and your success is a huge statement to the next generation about what you love and whether or not you trust God. That's Moses. So if you're mad at me, I'm sorry. We're going to wrap it up because it's time to wrap it up. <laughs> the last thing is this, just live for God. This seems so obvious. Deuteronomy 6.13, he says, fear the Lord, your God, serve him only. Take your oaths in his name. Don't follow other gods. He's like, don't chase around after idols, after other things. God's the people around you. For the Lord your God who among you is a jealous God, his anger will burn against you and he'll destroy you from the face of the land. That's awesome. Do not test the Lord your God as you did at Massa. Um, if I had time, I'd go into that whole thing that happened at Massa. That's part of why Moses isn't going into the promised land because of the testing of God and saying, you know, God, can I really trust you? Why'd you take me out here if you're not sustaining me, if there's not enough? Um, the attitude that creeps in. Um, verse 17, be sure to keep the commandments of the Lord your God and the stipulations and decrees that he's given to you. Do what is right and good in the Lord's sight so that you may go well with you and you may go in and take over the good land that the Lord's promised on oath to your forefathers, thrusting out all your enemies before you as the Lord has said. Um, jump ahead to 25 and I'll, I'll wrap it up. And if we are careful to obey all this law before the Lord our God as he has commanded us, that will be our righteousness. Do you believe you're leaving a legacy? Because you are. Some of you are like, I don't have kids you're still leaving a legacy. Little eyes are watching you all the time. Some of you are like, I'm way past raising my kids. Good, you're still leaving a legacy. Eyes behind you are watching you all the time. You know, I, I talk about this all the time, but it's true. I could not have stepped out in faith to plant a church if I had not 
got a hold of from the Lord that, that my legacy, come on now, the legacy I was leaving behind me had to be more important than the stuff I was holding on to. I couldn't have sold a house in the worst housing market in my lifetime in 2008 and moved to go a community where I had no connections. I didn't even have a place to live as we started loading the truck to go plant a church. And, and I remember looking at my son who was three at the time and thinking, oh man, I'm gonna make him homeless and he's gonna hate me. And I remember this wrestling match with the Lord saying, what legacy are you gonna leave? Is the legacy gonna be, well, daddy never took any risk and he just made sure that you had everything you needed or is the legacy gonna be dad heard from God and risked it all and obeyed and trusted God and look what the Lord's done. And I said, I wanna leave that legacy to him. And I'll tell you one more story and then I'll let you go. This last summer, I was speaking at summer camp <clears throat> down in Oregon and uh, it's funny to be a, a camp speaker now because I've always been a camp runner, right? When you're doing the youth ministry, you're always running on the camp. So I'm organizing games, running the budget, dealing with the food, dealing with all the chaos, playing. I'm in like, you know, that mode. But you come in your camp speaker and it's all of a sudden you're like an old guy mode. And you're standing up on the front and it's all of a sudden your responsibility to kind of impart something to that next generation and it's different. You're not just worried about are they safe? Are they fed? Did they have a good time? It's what can God do in their life? And so I was embracing kind of that role. And, and in every season of your life, you might have different roles. Maybe you're in play video games and, and just be big in slow mode. Maybe you're in speak some life into their mode. Maybe you have the financial ability to make sure someone can get to camp or get to whatever. I don't know what it is. But I was in a different mode. And I was preaching. And it was like the third night. And I was talking about Noah. And I was just, I mean, I was, I don't know where I was. I was just going. I was spitting fire, you know, that's what us preachers do. And I was like, where are my Noahs? Where's my one who will hear from God and obey, who will trust God, who will step out on faith, even if all of their friends are mocking them, even if everyone around them says, look at that fool that they trust God, because if God can find a Noah in this generation, he can save the generation, where are my Noahs? And kids are just, people are breaking through, and I'm praying with kids up in the front, and I'm up in the front, and I'm just preaching, and the band's playing, and you know, it's camp, and we're tired, and we're just praying, and then I look, and walking down the aisle over here, someone too small to be in the room. My son, Brayden. He's 10. He's supposed to be in bed. I don't even know if mom knows where he is at this point. If he snuck out or if he had permission, I won't figure it out. And he's pushing towards the front because he hears his dad saying that if one person will trust God and believe God and do what God's called him to do, that God can do a miracle and save his generation. And I'm trying to preach. And I'm like, sorry, guys, someone needs to take the microphone right now because as much as I love you, I'm out. That's my boy. That's my legacy. That's the next generation that I poured my life into who has to be around me all the time so sees all the warts, hearing the truth that there's hope and a plan for him, and that he can make a difference in his generation. And I, I don't know if you know the phrase mantaquilla means butter in Spanish, but dad was butter. I, I melted. I was a mess. I want you to think about the difference that you can make. Even though your role changes no matter what your season of life is, no matter where you're at right now, sometimes you're a buddy, sometimes you're a mentor, sometimes you're a parent, sometimes you're a teacher, sometimes you're a resourcer. I don't know what it is. But can you imagine if we looked at Celebration Center, we looked at this church, and the thing we were known about in the community was, you know what's funny about those people? They just love God. 
They just model loving God on the inside. And then they, they share God. What comes out of them on the outside is consistent to that. That's crazy. You know what? They, they remember God. When they're doing well, when God brings in provision, they remember, they give credit to God, and they assign that to the kingdom of God to do something that matters so that other people can be impacted. You know what they do really well? They live for God. Can you imagine if that was the reputation? Because Moses says, if you get that pattern right, you won't just have success. You'll have generational legacy changing success. I don't know about you, but I care about this next generation. Millennials is not a swear word. I don't say it most of the time with disgust. I want to say it with optimism. (laughs) Why? God cares. He's redeeming and restoring, just like my generation, just like your generation, whatever generation needs to be redeemed and restored. And he's reaching them in new and powerful ways. But you know what he's really doing? He's looking at the generations above saying, will you keep modeling this? Because that's what's going to be most attractive. And that's what's going to change and impact lives. And that's what's going to carry on a legacy of living for Jesus. Would you stand with me? I'm sorry, I took us a little late. I just believe with everything that's in me, if we do this part right, we can have tremendous impact in our homes, in our families, in this community. If we get this into our DNA, into our thought process, that it is each and every one of us's responsibility to live out our faith in such a way that the eyes that are coming up behind us see that and are challenged to live for Jesus. I don't care if you're in high school. In high school, I mentored someone behind me. I took the most arrogant, snot-nosed kid, and I was like, well, I speak his language, so he's mine. And I just mentored him. I just said, hey, man, there's nothing God can't do. Let's go play one-on-one. Teach you who's boss. I just invested. I don't care how young you are. I don't care how old. Moses is 120. There is nobody alive short of Joshua and Caleb who has been an adult that Moses could have known as an adult. They're all just kids. That's left over. I mean, maybe the oldest are in their 50s or so because everyone for 40 years has gone by. And anyone who could have fought would have been, what, 13 and over, it was gone. And these are kids for him. And he's pouring out his life. He's giving them his story. He's giving them the next Deuteronomy, the next telling of the law. You continue the cycle of the Deuteronomy in your family, in this community, in this church, in this body. It's why we dedicate babies. It's why we pray. It's why we send our best people to kids. It's why we pour our resources into our kindergarten. Listen, I got to tell you about our preschool and kindergarten. They're amazing how many families they're reaching, how many lives are getting touched. And it's fine with me that every day, twice a day above my office, they do calisthenics. They're stomping and clapping and jumping. It's right above my office. And every time I go, oh, I go, yes. The next generation's worth it. They're worth your time. Not just your advice. They're worth your time. God, thanks. Thanks for loving us and entrusting us with this sovereign responsibility to live it. Thanks for the people that poured their life into us, that challenged us, that drew us in and said we had value, we were worth it. They invested not just their knowledge, but their time. And they lived like you in front of us so that we could see and know the truth, that you're good that you're a father in heaven who loves us, that you have plans to prosper us and not to harm us, plans to give us hope and a future.
that you have resources and ability to, to, to literally take us through every exodus we have to experience. You can move in the supernatural to bring freedom and life and destiny into us. God, I pray for my dreamers. I pray they'd continue to dream big. And God, I pray for this generation that we would invest this church, we would invest, we'd pour our lives, God, into everyone that we can, understanding that's how this thing's supposed to work. Would we take up the mantle and take our turn, even in a community that prides itself on running the other direction, would we run towards the Lord? We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.